Welcome to the podcast of Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly magazine about medicine and health. I'm your host, Barbara Lewis. This free podcast is made possible by Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, Indiana's premier urban health and life sciences campus, IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. I'm Barbara Lewis. Coming up on Sound Medicine, now that the Supreme Court has heard arguments about Obamacare subsidies, we'll dig into what could happen next. Somewhere between 6 and 9 million people stand to lose their subsidies pretty quickly, meaning that insurance would immediately become out of reach. Plus, why there's pressure to make an overdose treatment drug even more available. It's just amazing that this one medicine, you shoot it up their nostril and then come back some practical tips to get ready for a medical procedure you'd probably rather not think about. If you split the dose that is actually much more effective, at the same time, it is better tolerated. And something completely different, how a storm-chasing doctor found real meaning in the Joplin, Missouri tornado. It's actually the best night of medicine I ever had in my entire life. I got to just talk to patients and try and be a doctor. That's all coming up next on Sound Medicine. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome to Sound Medicine, public radio's weekly news magazine about medicine and health. I'm Barbara Lewis. We begin this week with a close look at the big question on the Supreme Court schedule for the rest of the spring, what to do about the Affordable Care Act. As you no doubt know, the justices heard arguments earlier this month over four words in the ACA, established by the state. The question is whether it's okay to give tax subsidies to everyone who has bought health insurance through any of the insurance exchanges or only to people who bought through one that was, and here are those four words, established by the state. I'm joined in the studio by Sound Medicine's healthcare policy analyst, Dr. Aaron Carroll, to bring us up to date on what could happen next based on the Supreme Court decision that should come in late June or early July. Dr. Aaron Carroll, welcome back. Always great to be here. So you're a doctor, not a lawyer. So let's talk about the health policy implications of this case. And we're going to try not to get too deep in the weeds about standing and constitutionality and all that rest. So that said, What was your sense in reading the arguments on whether the justices were considering the legal issues or the inevitable real-life fallout from the case? Well, a few things were very interesting. First is that you could see in some of the more conservative justices the real-world implications of finding for the plaintiffs, that there would be a significant number of people who would lose their subsidies and would therefore lose insurance. You'd see it through Alitos talking about um, whether or not they might delay how long it would take for the um, ruling to actually go into play to give people time to find insurance, all the way up to uh, Scalia's uh, positioning that thinking that, that the, the Congress would somehow fix this. And then, of course, you you see the Solicitor General's joke about, you know, this Congress. So um, I think that everybody does recognize, or at least more people than, than we might think, recognize that there are significant implications to this case. However, um, I think the most interesting argument made was by uh, Justice Kennedy, who sort of came out of left field, uh, bringing out an argument that wasn't really in any of the briefs, where he actually talked about the constitutionality of this clause even if it was real. And you have to almost go back to the Medicaid expansion case where the Medicaid expansion was written into the law where it said either do the Medicaid expansion or states you're going to lose your traditional Medicaid money. It was sort of the stick and the carrot. And the justices said that's ridiculous. That traditional Medicaid is so important and so entrenched that this new idea of like threatening them was so coercive that it's not constitutional and that's why the Medicaid expansion is optional. And Kennedy made almost the same argument about this of saying that like the idea that all the people in states would lose their subsidies is so coercive um, and so over-the-top nasty uh, of a stick that even if it was written into the law uh, as a way to try to get states to set up their own exchanges, which is what the plaintiffs allege, that that's so coercive that it's unconstitutional. And that 
made a lot of supporters of the law very happy um, because they were thinking if, if Kennedy is actually making this argument, that will be very consistent with the way that, that everybody ruled for the Medicaid expansion. And it makes it much more likely that, that at least five justices will come down in favor of ruling against the plaintiffs and keeping things the way they are. And everybody's always interested in, in uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who was very quiet. He was quiet. And the thing is, it's like now I hear people talking about it, whether it's going to be six, three or five. I, you know, who knows? But uh, I think people were surprised by Kennedy's arguments in support of keeping things the way they are with or without Justice uh, Roberts moving forward. So if the case is decided for the plaintiffs, tax subsidies go away. And what then? So in 30-some states or the states that have you know sort of defaulted to the, or is it 20-some states, whatever it is, the states that have defaulted to the federal exchange, theoretically, all of their citizens who are getting subsidies from the exchanges would lose them. Some states will immediately fix things. I, I imagine a state that has accepted the Medicaid expansion has to really find a way to accept the subsidy money because you're not going to sort of screw your middle class after having accepted money to help people the low end of the socioeconomic spectrum. So I think many of those states will find a way to set up a state exchange as quickly as possible. There are also some administrative fixes that can happen at the federal government where you know they could come up with some you know nuances to say maybe a state could set up an exchange, meaning put a board together, and then immediately subcontract the workout to the federal government, which would, by the letter of the law, qualify for the federal subsidies, but would still, in spirit, allow the federal uh, government to run the exchange. But there will be some states that theoretically could just refuse to fix things. And depending upon the number of states that refuse to fix it, somewhere between six and nine million people stand to lose their subsidies pretty quickly, um, meaning that insurance would immediately become out of reach and expense. And even worse, that will immediately destroy the private insurance market in those states, where we'll have guaranteed issue and community rating, but no mandate or subsidies. And insurance will come very expensive very quickly. We'll get the death spiral. And at least another million or more people will probably find insurance too expensive for them to afford, uh, even if they were willing to pay for it. Well, let's talk about that death spiral. That's the idea of healthy young people will leave the insurance pool if premiums are too high and leaving just the sick or old people needing coverage, uh, sending those premiums up and, and forcing even more people to drop coverage. So New York State, before the Affordable Care Act was, was put into play, had... Uh, guaranteed issue and community rating, but no mandate or subsidies. They basically had the regulated market, but none of the sort of good things that came with the Affordable Care Act. And because of that, they, insurance companies had to give out policies and they couldn't charge people more whether or not they were sick. And because of that, without the subsidies or anything else, really healthy people opted out of buying the plans and more sick people bought the plans. So in 2013, an individual policy in New York State was on average about like $1,400 a month which is unbelievably expensive for an individual policy. When the Affordable Care Act was put into play one year later in 2014, and now there were the, the mandate and the, the subsidies, the average price for an individual plan dropped to about $500 a month. So you see that when you have the subsidies and the mandate, insurance costs about $500 a month. Without it, it costs more than $1,400 a month. That's what's likely going to happen in all the states that lose the subsidies. Okay, is so that, but when we talk about a death spiral, we think, Catastrophe. It, well, we think of the whole plan just right. kind of collapsing. Well, 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 there will be an equilibrium because still some healthy people will want to buy insurance. But the problem is when we talk about the death spirals, it just becomes prohibitively more and more and more expensive until it's really out of reach of the vast majority of people. Um, we're not talking about insurance companies going belly up, which is not going to happen because they will always find a price to charge that will keep them solvent. The problem is that that price can be prohibitively expensive. I mean, thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars a year for an individual policy is is almost as much as family policies cost in, in the rest of states. So does this mean that we would be in a situation worse than we were in terms of the number of uninsured than before? No. The Affordable Care Act? No, because um, you have to always remember if we take a step back that, that we're, you know, we're only talking about, you know, total 16, 17 million people that were expected to buy insurance in the exchanges. So we're, we're talking about about a half of the people maybe who were expected to buy insurance through the exchanges losing that coverage. It's not everybody. And so even if we return a, a chunk of those people to uninsured status, it probably the levels will go up above what they are today, but not above what they were before. And so it is not as if this will be worse than what uh, existed. 
except for the fact that who is uninsured will change. Uh, in the past, it used to be that the people that were insured were young, healthy people who could buy a cheap policy. The, the guaranteed issue in the community ratings will get rid of that. Instead, there will likely be sicker people who are buying insurance, but it'll be very expensive. So you better remind us what community rating means. So the regulations fall into two flavors, community ratings and guaranteed issue. Guaranteed issue means that the insurance company must give you a policy. They cannot turn you down. doesn't matter if you're sick. doesn't matter if you're old. doesn't matter if you're young. doesn't matter if you smoke. They have to give you a policy. The community ratings means that they can't decide how much you're going to pay based on individual values. They can't say, well, you're a man or you're a woman, we're going to charge you more or less, or you're, um, you, know, you have kids or you don't have, that we're going to charge you more or less, or that you're sick or, or not sick and we're going to charge you more or less. And I should back up and say they can, of course, charge you differently for a family policy than individual rating policy, but not based on the number of kids. But they can't charge you more or less for being sick. And that's what me, the community ratings means. They have to issue the cost of the policy based on the community in which you live, not based on any factors about you in itself, which means that just, you know, they can put on a website, this is what it costs. If you're this age and you have no kids and you want an individual policy and you live here, that's the price. That's the community ratings. Okay. The health insurance companies filed a friend of the court brief in this case. What's the industry's position? They absolutely want the uh, uh, the subsidies remain in place. You have to remember that the subsidies are allowing people to buy their product. Um, and they also know that without the mandate and the subsidies, because the subsidies goes, the mandate has to go, because now insurance is too expensive, um, that that causes the death spiral and that breaks the private insurance market to some extent. And so they, the, 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 the mandate and the subsidies are there to help the private insurance companies. They want them to continue. Anything else about, about the arguments that surprised you? We touched on some of them. but I, The standing issues um, still could come into play, although it appears that they were sort of glossed over. I, I mean, you have to remember that, that everybody has to say that there is you know, a damage to them to bring a case to court. For some of these people, it turned out that the damage wasn't really there. Some are, might be eligible for VA. Some will soon be eligible, eligible for Medicare. Um, some people, the, they might have been el eligible for Medicaid or even that the subsidies didn't apply to them. And so I thought that might get more play, but, but it really did not. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I expected again, I think, to see Justice Roberts uh, be more vocal um, and not to see so much out of Kennedy. I've always been somewhat optimistic uh, in the sense that I thought that the government had the better argument here. So I don't think that I was shockingly relieved to see that things seemed to be going their way. Uh, from the beginning, I thought that, that the case that the plaintiffs were bringing was on the weaker side. Mm -hmm. How does this case uh, stack up to all the other kind of uh, attacks, if you will, or, or the uh, attempts to, to dismantle Obamacare? I think each each successive attack becomes less and less potent. You know, the Medicaid expansion, making that optional was a huge blow um, to the Affordable Care Act. And we've seen a lot of states, you know, let that go, um, but still progress is being made. The, the Losing the individual mandate would have been absolutely crushing for this, because without the individual mandate, every uh, Every market in the United States would have been like New York State, would have been, well, now we've got the, 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 the guaranteed issue in the community ratings, but no, no mandate, the subsidies are irrelevant. We would have had a fractured market. So that, that was a necessary pillar. This one could, as I said, bring down subsidies in some of the states, but it won't be nationwide. We'll be left with two insurance markets. You know, a fully functioning Affordable Care Act in more liberal-leaning states and an absolutely broken individual private insurance market in more conservative-leaning states. That's bad optics, and it will not bring down the law in, in its entirety. It'll just make it fractured, and it will be more and more difficult, I think, as time goes on, for legislators in conservative-leaning states to say, well, there's nothing we can do about this, when right next door, everything is so much better. So everyone's making predictions. Whose prediction do, do you like, or do you have your own, or do you I, even want to bother? I, I'm happy to go on record, I, freely admitting that this is a guess and that I'm not even a constitutional scholar. But I, I, I have said for a long time, I think that uh, that things will probably go for the government. I think that uh, that Supreme Court justice, the Supreme Court on the whole, seemed unwilling to destroy the Affordable Care Act. You know, two, three years ago. I think it's just as likely that. They won't want to now, and I think the arguments this time are a lot weaker um, than they were the last time. And especially now that Kennedy sort of brought out this constitutionality argument, which they've already, you know, already decided for Medicaid, I think it's much more likely that they're going to go uh, for the government.
Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you. Thank you. And you can follow Dr. Aaron Carroll's blog all about healthcare policy at The Incidental Economist. We'll post a link at our website. Just go to soundmedicine.org. I'm Eric Metcalf, and your Sound Medicine stat is two. As the online ads like to say, here's one weird trick that plastic surgeons hate. Researchers in the UK brought in a group of college students, then took three headshot photos of each. In one picture, the volunteer was sober. The next was after one drink, roughly the equivalent of eight ounces of wine. The last photo was after the volunteer had had yet another drink. Then another group of young adults compared the attractiveness of the photos. They found that the people looked more attractive after they'd had one drink than when they were sober. But they looked worse after two drinks Two? compared to their sober face. A bit of alcohol can make your face flushed. Higher levels of sex hormones can also add a little redness to your cheeks and so can better aerobic fitness. So a reddish face, from an evolutionary standpoint, may make you look like a catch reproduction-wise. But with too much alcohol, your dazed expression may make you look like less of a good bet. That was the number two, and I'm Eric Metcalf. Coming up, there's a new drug that can reverse the effects of a heroin overdose. So who is opposed to that? We'll have a report. And later, a storm chaser tells about his best day as a doctor. It's actually the best night of medicine I ever had in my entire life. I got to just talk to patients and try and be a doctor. You're listening to Sound Medicine. Underwriting for Sound Medicine's health news headlines comes from Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. More information at marion.edu slash medical school. I'm Jill Dittmeyer with this week's health news headlines. The CDC reported this week that nearly half of all pregnant women gain more weight than is healthy. Women of normal weight should plan to gain 25 to 35 pounds and less than that for women who are overweight or obese. Gaining too much can lead to premature birth and a higher risk of developing diabetes and high blood pressure both during and after pregnancy. The FDA could soon approve a drug to dissolve the fat in your double chin. An advisory panel this week gave thumbs up to the drug that so far is named ATX-101. It's made from a natural compound already found in the body that helps to digest fat. A California biotech company hopes to market the drug soon as an alternative to plastic surgery. There was more evidence this week that the combination of depression and heart disease can be deadly. Researchers at Columbia University Medical Center in New York City monitored the mental health of 4,400 adults with coronary heart disease over the span of six years. At the end of the study, 1,300 had died and half had reported both high stress and depression. One theory is that periods of stress can make the heart beat harder and faster, which raises the blood pressure and can lead to a heart attack and stroke. And finally, advice this week on what to do if you want your children to become narcissistic brats. Praise them all the time. Child development researchers at the University of Amsterdam reported that children whose parents overvalued them by bragging about their IQ or insisting they knew more than they really did, those kids were more likely to develop traits like superiority and entitlement. On the other hand, parents who were affectionate and encouraging but let their kids fail once in a while ended up with children with better self-esteem and probably more friends, too. Reporting for Sound Medicine News, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You're listening to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. Naloxone is a drug that's been around for decades. Now it's being stocked in a lot of police cars and ambulances because of how effective it is in saving the life of someone who's had a heroin overdose. So what's controversial about that? Well, Sound Medicine contributor Andrea Moraskin looked into it. Officer Monica Hodge has seen people come back from the dead. Well, close to it. I'll check for the heartbeat. And it's very, very faint. And of course, they're completely unconscious. They're blue. And their breath, it's these huge gasps of air. Like, <gasps> and it takes a long period of time in between each gasp. So I know right then it's a heroin overdose. 
Hodge says she's witnessed about 30 heroin overdoses over 11 years, working on the near west side of Indianapolis, most of them in the past three years. As a patrol officer in a dense urban neighborhood, she can respond to a call within about a minute, she says. Until last spring, all she could do when she got to the scene was monitor the pulse and wait for an ambulance to arrive. But in April of 2014, Hodge and the other cops in the district received a supply of naloxone, also called Narcan, a drug with the power to reverse an overdose. It's just amazing that this one medicine, you shoot it up their nostril and then come back and be conscious and alert and talking within a minute. In high enough concentrations, opioids will shut down the areas of the brain that control breathing, causing an overdose. Naloxone attaches to the same receptors that opioids do. It kicks the opioids off the receptors so they quickly lose their effect. Naloxone is not new. In fact, it's been available as an injection for over 40 years. In the days when Officer Hodge had to just wait for the ambulance, that's what the paramedics would use to revive patients before taking them to the hospital. Now, naloxone administered as a nasal spray is gaining popularity among police, but it's still not widespread. Twenty-two states don't allow police to administer it. In Indiana, where it's been legal for police to use for a year, only six departments actually have it. But demand is growing quickly across the country. Overdose deaths related to prescription opioids climbed from 4,400 in the year 2000 to over 16,900 in 2011, a rise that has been linked to high prescription rates. Heroin deaths climbed from about 3,000 in 2010 to over 8,000 in 2014. In recent studies of young people who inject heroin, nearly half reported abusing prescription opioids first. Bailey Jacobs, 22, is a recovering heroin addict, two and a half years clean. She started using heroin with her older sister, Riley, who was already addicted at the time. I enjoyed spending the time with her because I knew there was no other way really to spend time together. Bailey says her sister abused Oxycontin before switching to heroin. Everybody was doing Oxycontin, and, and so I think whoever made the decision to make them un- Basically, you can't crush them up or snort them or do them in any way um, to get high. And I just remember hearing about it and her talking about how her and her friends had issues ever finding drugs because the pharmacies had made it so you can't do the drugs, you know, in a way to get high. And so they were like, all right, and then we'll go the cheaper route. And pretty much from then on, it, it became more of a thing. People had heroin around people. While manufacturers started making tamper-proof pills, many states, including Indiana, began tracking opioid prescriptions, making it harder to abuse the drugs. Indiana's Attorney General Greg Zeller is well aware that these policy changes have led to addicts switching to heroin, and he expects heroin use to get worse before it gets better. We're going to see more and more people cut off that shouldn't have as much access. But then you're going to have rates of heroin use skyrocket. That's a much harder problem, and you're going to need uh, Narcan available to catch the people uh, that are overdosing uh, until we can get a better grip on the whole problem. In the face of this epidemic, advocates in Indiana are mobilizing to raise awareness about and funding for Narcan, a bill that would allow doctors to issue prescriptions to family members and friends of addicts, allowing them to save a loved one's life without waiting for emergency response passed the state Senate unanimously in February and is headed for the House. Tell me one soul doesn't matter. Tell me there's one soul out here, one soul in this room that doesn't matter. You can't because we all matter. We need the Narcan to get into the hands, not just of the officers and the paramedics, us. A community meeting held by the local organization Hope Overcoming Heroin takes on a church-like feeling. A volunteer organizer asked the group of parents and recovering addicts to work together to make naloxone more available, to allow for more second chances at life. Hope Overcoming Heroin formed last fall in affluent Hamilton County, north of Indianapolis. Kevin Moore, Bailey's mom, is one of the founders of the group. Her older daughter got a second chance after an overdose in 2011 and is now in recovery out of state. But she still wants to have Narcan on hand. 
because she is a recovering heroin addict, if she would relapse, she is in the highest risk group for an overdose. Because when heroin addicts, if they do relapse, they tend to use what they used before and their body's not ready for it. At the meeting, the group addressed a concern they'd heard from community members, that making naloxone more available could enable addicts to continue using and push themselves to the brink of overdose, knowing that the drug would be there to save them. Kevin says addicts' brains don't work that way. So here, this great high, the last thing they remember was feeling fantastic. They don't even realize that they're near death or not breathing. And they wake up, and that Narcan not only has taken away the great high, they're sick. They need, they're physically, they have withdrawal. Like, you go, go, you go to withdrawal in zero seconds once you get that Narcan. So they are angry at whoever just saved their life because that was just the best buzz of their life. Attorney General Zeller says the cost to society of naloxone, as well as programs to help addicts recover, are far less than the costs of the epidemic. Uh, there's no question that, you know, the drug um, addiction problem uh, ends up having results in crimes. Indiana's number one in the nation in pharmacy robberies. The number of home break-ins and petty larceny and robbery. I mean, a lot of our crime is driven by this drug addiction. Zoller says Indiana lacks the doctors and infrastructure to help addicts without the means to put themselves through treatment. And he hopes to see the state catch up in the coming years. It's a lot cheaper than building another prison. Reporting for Sound Medicine, I'm Andrea Maraskin. We've posted a number of resources about how naloxone works. They're at our website, soundmedicine.org. There is a new weapon in the long-running battle to prevent antibiotics from becoming resistant to common bacteria, and this treatment just might be in your kitchen cabinet. Here's Jill Dittmeyer with this week's Sound Medicine Checkup. The buzz in Dr. Susan Meshwitz's lab surrounds the honey from the Manuka plant. Manuka honey is active against a broad spectrum of bacteria. I mean, it's, the list just goes on and on. The plant grows in New Zealand. Meshwitz is in Rhode Island. So she got online and ordered some of the super germ-fighting substance. It almost smells medicinal. I mean, quite honestly, I don't think it looks like honey that I would care to put in my tea. Instead, she diluted the dark brown honey with water, added some bacteria, and watched. And this is where it gets really interesting because... It killed the bacteria and stopped it from developing a resistance to the honey's healing power. The honey probably needs to be in direct contact with the bacteria because it, it's reacting with some mechanism that's going on in the bacteria um, and, and helping to interfere with that communication system that bacteria use to talk to one another. You know, in the future, we're going to need different types of antibiotics that don't work just by killing the bacteria. So the new buzzwords are antipathogenic agents or antivirulence agents. So her quest for the holy grail of honey continues. I haven't tested a lot yet, but one of the ones that I found that was showing some good activity is called Texas Tallow Tree Honey. And when it comes to finding it, she's as busy as, uh, well, you know. I keep looking for different sources of different honeys, and I want to test them, and I want to see, you know, is this going to be the one that's going to be, you know, just as active as Manuka? I'm still kind of looking for that one honey, that one other honey. Learn more about bees and honey at our website, soundmedicine.org. And you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and send us ideas for future stories. I'm Jill Dittmeyer. <laughs> You can listen to Sound Medicine anytime by signing up for our free weekly podcast. It's at our website, soundmedicine.org. Plus, we're at Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Swell AM, and iTunes. Just search for Sound Medicine Radio Hour.
Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome back to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. It's one of those medical rites of passage. You turn 50, your doctor tells you it's time for your first colonoscopy. Great. My next guest wants you to know that it's really not that bad, and it is important. And even though it's not something we usually talk about on radio, well, today we are. It'll be okay. I promise. Dr. Wali Ajumabi, welcome to Sound Medicine. Thanks for having me. Now, you have a special interest in helping people with the not-so-fun activity of preparing for a colonoscopy. Research has found that cleaning out the large intestine um, so it's really clean is one of the biggest issues that make people dread the screening. What type of stories do you tell your patients uh, about this process? We know that uh, bowel preparation is the most unpleasant aspect of colonoscopy. And so what I tell my patient is that even though this may be unpleasant, this is perhaps the most important aspect of colonoscopy. And what I usually tell them is that, one, your doctor has recommended that you perform a colonoscopy. If it's done for the purpose of screening for colon cancer, it is an important test. And then I explain to them the implications of a good bowel preparation. If the bowel is clean, your provider can see the colon mucosa very well. Your provider can identify polyps and can remove the polyps. And so when I explain to them the importance of an adequate bowel preparation, they know that even though this may be unpleasant, this is something they want to do. I try to give them tips that will make bowel preparation less unpleasant. So one of the tricks that I tell them is that you may want to refrigerate or chill your bowel preparation agent because when it's cold, it's easier to take. If you split the dose of the bowel preparation, we found out that it's actually much more effective in cleaning the colon. At the same time, it is better tolerated compared to just taking everything at once. The other thing that I tell them is that they may want to use a straw instead of gulping down the liquid. When you use a straw, it seems to make the experience less unpleasant. The other thing that I sometimes tell them to do is to get a menthol candy because we know that sucking on the candy can make the bowel preparation taste less unpleasant. Now, a lot of times people would use Gatorade or something like that. I mean, are there any ones that seem to uh, work better for your patients than others? The Gatorade Miralax uh, combination uh, appears to be quite popular among patients. And it's because Miralax by itself is tasteless. And so when they add Gatorade, compared to the other bowel cleansing agent, the taste may be preferable. But Miralax as a bowel cleansing agent for colonoscopy has actually not been approved by the FDA for that purpose. So in terms of if you didn't prepare your bowels correctly and it's not clean, what sort of risks are involved? If the bowel preparation is not adequate or if it is poor, one, it's very difficult for the provider to see the lining of your colon. And because it's difficult to see, we may miss polyps or other lesions that may be potentially dangerous. In addition to that, we spend more time cleaning the colon 
and removing the dairy material. And if we do so, uh, it takes longer for us to complete the procedure. And sometimes when we do some of the therapy that we can do to remove the polyps, the risk of complications may be higher if the bowel preparation is not adequate. So what should people eat and drink the day before a colonoscopy, and is there anything else they should stay away from? Generally speaking, we ask our patients to be on a liquid diet a day before their colonoscopy. And sometimes you can tell what is a liquid or clear liquid diet by putting the material in a transparent cup or glass cup and seeing if you can read a newspaper or material through the uh, liquid. If you can read a material or read a newspaper through the liquid, then it is a clear liquid. And so that can be consumed. In general, patients can drink water, they can take coffee or tea without uh, milk. They can have apple juice, they can have sodas, they can also have spot drinks. In terms of what they can eat before colonoscopy, a day before colonoscopy, they can eat any clear broth or soup, uh, they can have honey, hard candies, they can have jellos and popsicles, and they can also have sugar. In terms of what to avoid a day before colonoscopy, we want our patients to avoid orange juice, milk, or other milk products like milkshake, malt, and definitely no alcoholic drinks. In terms of food to avoid, they should avoid vegetables, fruits, meat or poultry products, bread, pasta, rice, cereals, grains, and seeds and nuts. We usually want them to drink plenty of fluids in order not to be dehydrated. So we encourage them to drink uh, water or, or fluid as often as possible. Uh, I want the patients to recognize that colonoscopy is an important test. It's one of the few screening tests that can not only detect colon cancer, but can prevent colon cancer because we remove the polyps before they become cancerous. Uh, we have come a long way in reducing cancer death due to colon cancer in this country, but colon cancer is still the second leading cause of cancer death in the United States. Well, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Dr. Wally Ajumabi is a gastroenterology fellow at Loma Linda University in California. You have some lovely children and a lovely wife. You have a healthy bank account and had a healthy life. But you knew the day was coming. It was always meant to be. Your doctor says it's time to have a colonoscopy. Oh, colon, colon, colonoscopy. A wonderful procedure, as everyone can see. Your number's up. It's time to take one for the team. It's right there on the schedule. A colonoscopy. You're listening to Sound Medicine, and because you are, we're going to take a leap of faith here that you're interested in a wide range of science, including storms. Because recently, we were interviewing a doctor in Denver about an entirely different topic when we got to talking about his avocation as a storm chaser. Dr. Jason Persoff is a hospitalist. Every May, he takes time off from his duties, logging up to 4,000 miles chasing storms. He says he's a bit more cautious than those guys you see on TV, but he still gets right in the middle of things. What's really cool to me is the process of storm chasing takes a lot of my 
diagnostic acumen as a physician because it turns out storms have an anatomy and a physiology. And the forecasting to me is this very elegant art of combining medicine and meteorology to try and figure out where the best storms will occur and to be there. And the reason I'm so drawn to it is it's a very spiritual experience for me. We live in an amazing country, and the countryside is spectacular when framed with severe weather. Obviously, I don't like the byproduct, the damage that happens from any of the severe weather. But there's something very zen about sitting in a cornfield with a thunderstorm around and being at one with these storms that are taller than Mount Everest, and they just form from water vapor. What a spectacular experience to be part of that. In May 2011, Dr. Persoff's two passions converged when an EF5 tornado devastated the town of Joplin, Missouri. From a diagnostic standpoint, there was the potential for a really big tornado, but as the day evolved, the storms that were forming near Joplin were really humdrum, which um, was good news for a while, but then suddenly out of nowhere, this beast of a storm formed just west of Joplin and morphed into uh, the deadliest tornado in U.S. history in the past 50 years in a very, very quick fashion. The tornado touched down, and within a few minutes of touching down, it had killed 100 people and then went on to injure over 1,500. It was a very, very rare tornado that formed that particular day. In fact, I don't think any of us have ever seen a storm quite morph into this powerful a storm from such a disorganized system in our careers. Tornado was even worse because it also grew wider faster than it was moving. It started from maybe 10 yards wide and then went to three quarters of a mile wide in less than 45 seconds. It was an extraordinary beast. As a consequence, when I was chasing it, and I recognized how significant it was, I was chasing with other chasers who are like-minded, and we decided to give the storm that formed the tornado an extraordinarily wide berth. And I'm very grateful we did. As we were hanging back and the storm became more and more intense, the winds were amazing coming out of the storm and blowing into the storm. On radar, there's a signature that we can sometimes see with powerful tornadoes called a debris ball. Since the Earth is spherical, uh, radars can only see line of sight, which means the radar beam can only go straight out from where the radar is. It can't curve around the Earth. The further away you are from the radar station, the higher up in the clouds you're seeing. What we were seeing was debris that at that point was being picked up by radar, which was measuring things about a thousand feet or more above the ground. For a tornado to do that, it has to be extremely powerful. And the debris ball was centered right over Joplin. So we knew that this was awful. Another clue to the storm's severity Persoff's car was heading east into the storm, about a half a mile from Joplin. He noticed that there was no traffic heading west, getting out of town. We set up a triage station on the highway when we first came across several semis that I had thought were in the tornado's path. The semis had actually been tossed quite a bit from just straight line winds, but we had assumed that it was the tornado's path. The wind at that point was around 80 miles per hour around the back of the storm. There was lightning everywhere, types of lightning which are unique to tornadoes. They were just these little strips and bits of lightning connecting to the ground and torrential rainfall, not unlike a hurricane, but with much more lightning. And there was a horrible sound of the tornado itself, which 
We never heard a destructive tornado before this. It sounded like metal grinding on glass. It took a good five to seven minutes before we saw the only emergency vehicle we would see, which was a police officer. I identified myself as a physician and stated that we were starting a triage place, but if they wanted me somewhere else, I'd be happy to go. And he indicated that he hoped I didn't work for one of the two hospitals in town because it had been destroyed. And I remember thinking a hospital destroyed is, um, that's unimaginable to me. Here we are in the midst of all of this chaos and things, and we're sitting here just trying to explain how to get to the other hospital, and we're taking notes. And it occurred to me that we had to drive forward through this huge amount of debris to turn around so that we could get back on the highway to get back to the other hospital, which was Freeman Health System, and St. John's Hospital in Joplin had been destroyed. As we crested the hill into the Freeman Health System, uh, you could see from this ridge, most of the town was laid out in front of us, destroyed. And so there was this very eerie moment where it was extraordinarily quiet. Freeman Health System had suffered a power outage, so all of the fire alarm strobe lights were flashing, and you could see them flashing throughout the hospital, and it looked like a moment from The Walking Dead. But when we got into the hospital, the hospital was on the ball, man. These guys were just all over that. And they were ready and they were willing and they, they were doing a great job. So it was easy to settle back down once I had such great leadership there to look to. So I assisted in the trauma bays initially and saw injuries that I'd read about in textbooks. I used to be an EMT, so this looked like a lot of what I'd read about, whale chest and other incredible injuries. I had the opportunity to be with patients at the end of their lives and also to help try to save some lives. It was clearly out of my element. A nursing supervisor told Dr. Persoff there were other patients they needed him to care for. He took me through this waiting room where hundreds of people had shown up and they were bloody lots of injuries, but mild injuries, and I thought, dear God, please don't let this be where you're taking me, because I couldn't do that. I couldn't take care of that many patients. Instead, he took me over to where their discharge lounge had been, and there was a whole bunch of patients that were showing up there who had been basically taken out of St. John's Hospital, which had been destroyed, and placed in this discharge unit. And these were medical patients, with a huge exception. They were medical patients who some of them had witnessed the roof flying off their hospital just minutes before. All of their records were gone. No reference point, which frustrated some of the patients that it was an electronic medical record. Can't you look it up? No, I think your electronic medical records are somewhere closer to Tennessee now. It was actually the best night of medicine I ever had in my entire life because there was really no paperwork. I got to just talk to patients and try and be a doctor. In my career, there's never been an opportunity quite like that. There was no billing or coding to worry about. Uh, practice wasn't an issue. There was just people working with people. And it was the greatest moment in my career. My stethoscope, my interview skills, my physical exam, and doing the best I could with the resources on hand. And bear in mind, I had some amazing nurses who were working with me in that discharge lounge. And I cannot even begin to tell you how rapidly we got the medicines patients needed. The radiographic studies, EKGs, lab. It was an amazing operation. And so to that extent, it felt very normal. The other extent, it, it was out of control. I had 40 or 50 patients I was trying to take care of. It was a great experience. One of the things that struck me amazingly deeply was this town was destroyed and the employees there for many, many hours while cell service was out had no idea how their own family members had fared or whether their house was still standing. I 
and yet they worked so hard to help their citizens. It was a very humbling moment because that level of dedication and putting someone else's needs truly ahead of their own was breathtaking. I didn't have a horse in this race other than wanting to help another human being. This was their community and it was destroyed. And when you see people working under those conditions and delivering the type of care that they delivered without panicking, with strong determination and compassion, it was truly inspiring to me about how we as human beings can really be there for each other at the worst of times and offered me a really good feeling about humanity as a whole. Many of the things I learned about mass casualty incidents prior to this were based on simulations of an influenza outbreak or were based on models or conjectures. And I will tell you that there is an incredible emergency management system in place wherever you live that is highly coordinated and with experts who know what they're doing. Where it breaks down, however, is at the level of the working person. I wasn't aware of what their emergency plan was, nor how to be part of it. And most of the people I was working with didn't know either. And so for that, it inspired me to change how I'm approaching my own career. I'm figuring out how we can get that last piece, the bottom part of the pyramid, engaged in emergency preparation, so that we in the future can be able to deliver care even better than what was done that evening. That's Dr. Jason Persoff. He's a hospitalist in Denver, and we've posted some of his more remarkable storm videos. They're at our website. Just go to soundmedicine.org. That piece was edited by Sound Medicine's amazing engineer, Chris Lieber. And that's it for this week's program. You can post comments about what you heard today on Facebook and submit suggestions for future shows on our website at soundmedicine.org. And while you're there, you can subscribe to our free podcast so you can listen anytime that's convenient for you. Sound Medicine senior producer is Nora Hyatt. Eric Metcalf produces our interviews. Chris Lieber records and edits the program. Andy chooses our music. Steve Ali of Jazzville Studios wrote our theme music. Carmel Roth is the managing editor of Sound Medicine News with help from Andrea Moraskin. And the executive producer is Eric Eggleton. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Thanks for listening. For more information about anything you heard on this podcast, please go to our website, soundmedicine.org. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health.